Welcome back to the Bet on Yourself podcast. This podcast is for ambitious people just like you who want to create a life and career that is full of adventure, learning, and fulfillment. In this podcast, I am translating the best practices of seemingly super performers to actionable advice for us normal people so that we can meet our goals and get extraordinary results. Today's guest is Pani Morchetti, the Chief Operating Officer of Beauty Pie and is in charge of restructuring and transforming the company's business operations, focusing on product development and technology. Former international MD at Funding Circle UK, Morchetti has extensive experience in scaling up businesses and international expansion. In our conversation, Pani shares how she started her career in consulting after promising her dad that she would get a real job when she graduated as a history major. So I was a history major, I did well, and then really the only jobs that would take real jobs that would take history majors were like consultants. After a poor review from her first six months, she decided to make a move from the analytical projects to the strategic ones where her strengths lied and became a top billing consultant within two years. Pani also discussed some of the sliding door moments that she's leaned into that changed her future for the better. So we decided to close down that business, obviously. Um, it wasn't the right time. But actually our um, board, one of the investors, was investing in a company called Wanga, which became you know, one of the first fintechs in the UK, and I actually ended up joining them. We also talk about the cultural implications of going global, adapting your approaches, and pivoting when necessary. And embrace those differences. There's nothing wrong with it, um, but you can't go in with the same cell every single time. Pani also walks us through the Beauty Pipe subscription model and how they're disrupting the industry and making luxurious products accessible to everyone. We also discuss the launch cycle of physical products compared to virtual products and the importance of having a good team around her. I loved her advice on hiring smart people who can tackle anything and the value of novices. At the end of the episode, we talk about the biggest lessons and takeaways from her career that will contribute to her legacy. So here we go. Pani Morchetti, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you on this over here, very rainy day, very sunny day on your side. Oh, I hate to rub it in, but it is a gorgeous day, particularly. Um, hopefully we can get back to being in person together, but in the meantime, I'm really happy that we can connect this way at least. Absolutely. Very excited to meet in person. So I was very inspired by getting to know you through the Accelerate Her event and your career. And I thought you would just be the perfect person to share your career journey with our listeners. And I think they'll really resonate with some of the pivots and changes and investments and risks that you took in yourself in your career. But to get us started, I wonder if you can take us way, way back to the beginning. What was your very first job ever? Huh? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I had a deal with my dad. Um, I went to university and um, he wanted me to be an economics major. And I didn't really want to do it. I loved history. And let's just say the first two years didn't go so well. Um, and so we made a deal that I could be a history major as long as I got a real job after school. Um, and so I was a history major, did well. And then really the only jobs that would take real jobs that would take history majors were like consultants, right? And I'm not sure how I did. I did a lot of studying on the interview techniques or whatever, but I got a job as a consultant. And honestly, you know, that was one of the best decisions and best starts. And I can't recommend it highly enough because what it did was really help me, um, structure my thinking because they just teach you this stuff. And yeah, you learn a little bit of it in college, but not really. Um, build a model. I mean, you know, the nights I, I dreamt that I was stuck in a cell, in Excel, you know, like trying to build a model. Um, how do you comport yourself, right? How do you handle yourself in front of a client? Um, how do you take feedback? How do you write a presentation? Horizontal, then vertical logic, so important. So all the kind of basics, table stakes that you need to do well in this world, they teach you and they teach you like in two weeks and it's sink or swim, right? Um, and I really struggled. I mean, it was not an easy onboarding for me because I was a history major. Most people were engineers and, um, but you know, I learned a lot very quickly and that was really the, the first job and, you know, really, really important. And just one other point, I actually did pretty poorly in the first six months. They kind of gave, they gave me a bad review and they were like, you know what, maybe I'm doing something else. And then I was like, wow. And, you know, I was going to think about quitting because I'm like, maybe it's not my thing. I promised my dad the promise is over. And then I really just settled down and looked at like, what could I do really well while I was consulting? 
And I realized I was stuck on these very analytical projects with engineers, which I couldn't do. And I went on more strategy projects and then I really killed it and I became um, the top billing consultant after two years. So um, quite a journey, but really, really a phenomenal training. I really love that you took this potentially, some people would have shrank into that criticism, that first review that wasn't what they wanted. I mean, I did shrink for a while. I didn't, I didn't get out of bed for a week. Let's put it that way. Shrinking is part of it. It's, it's a natural. But I love that instead you turned around being like, okay, where do my strengths lie? What, how can I shift my role? Because I think it took me a long time as well in my first job to realize that my job description didn't have to be this forever box that I had to live in, that you actually can invent it, shape it around your interests, your talents. And I love that you pivoted it to a place that played to your strengths, which not only is good for you and more satisfying because you like to perform well, but better for everyone around Absolutely. you. So giving yourself that permission to, to pivot and uh, take that feedback and then turn it into something else. Is, wow, it, that's really mature. How old were you? That was just after undergrad, right? 22, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Survival, really, because how was I going to pay the bills? Um, it, it was easier to stay than leave, I think. But yeah, I mean, it's that kind of resilience that you got to find it because it's, you know, and also at 22, I mean, what, are they, what do you know about yourself? What do they know about you? So I realized that what they told me was just what they'd been seeing. And there were parts that were true, but I could really come back from that and I, I could do it better. And so that's, you know, that was the focus. I remember my first job at 22, my manager, John, when I was working for Jeff Bezos, the first few times I was putting something together for Jeff, my manager would look at it first, thank goodness, because mm -hmm. back like red, just like everything was wrong. And I, you know, I'd been a good student and it, that could have really thrown me off my game, but I was so glad that I had somebody to mentor me. I mean, John, I still use all his methods even today, like 20 years later, some of those best practices from early in my career. So I think when you really are open to that kind of pe feedback, people do lean in and they kind of shepherd you when they see you engaging and really putting in the work. Um, Absolutely. And then you hold it for life, right? You still use those techniques and that's, that's the super important part. For life, really. So that's where you started. Where did you pivot to from there? What, what was the next steps of your career journey? So after two years being a consultant, very typical, like I liked, you know, advising and working with, with companies, but I felt like I was missing out. I didn't really know what it was. So I just started doing random interviews. And there was a colleague of mine, he and I were interviewing for the same job at a bank. I didn't get it, thank God. He got it, he felt guilty. So he had a friend um, who, uh, his brother's friend had, was starting this business, um, and this is, this is 1998, um, Internet 1.0, and they were doing payments um, and trying to do micro payments to pay for music. Can you imagine that? Um, and uh, it was based on a chat software and it was an Israeli company at the time who really ICQ, I don't know if you remember it, but became, uh, you know, the kind of instant chat. And so I interviewed with them and, you know, I got the job and I was, you know, I did, we called the business development, but I literally did everything from ordering the coffee, creating the presentation, you know, talking to like the two person tech team. And I loved it. And I was like, this is it, man. Like, this is this is what life is all about. I found my calling. And so, you know, really kind of pivoted from there, from, you know, slideware, which is all we had because we didn't have a product at the time, to working with a tech team because I had to translate what they were doing into a slide. And then that kind of became product management, right? Um, and that's kind of how it worked. But, you know, incredibly exciting for a couple of years where you have to do everything and you have to be humble enough to do everything, like order the coffee because there was no one else. And, but also you get to do the great things and go to meetings and meet great people, meet VCs and everything. Do you find yourself now when you're running a company, drawing from those early experiences of understanding what it feels like to sit in each of those seats and having been the one getting the coffee or been the one doing the, the research or the thinkless, seemingly invisible jobs, does that inform the way that you lead now? Yeah, I think because I've done it pretty much all. Um, you know, even coding, right? Like, it's a, you know, it's a basically an Excel formula. So you feel like you can talk to different areas of the business and draw from those experiences. And, you know, when you ask someone to do something like, you know, I've done it. So, you know, the fact that I'm asking you, doesn't mean that I haven't done it. I've done it plenty of times and I'll also continue to do it because it's kind of in your blood. You know, that's what you do when you're in the beginning of a startup, you got to do everything. Nothing is, you know, is, is, is trivial, right? Even ordering the coffee, staying awake is important. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was really, it's fun and it never leaves you, especially probably your first startup. 
I think that's so important as I'm seeing my consulting clients now pivoting in COVID and really trying to maximize their output. A lot of them are adopting kind of a, like a chief of staff or a number two to really help accelerate their growth. And the ones, those that I've seen be the most successful are actually those who come from inside the company who've worked across multiple teams. They're able to draw from those experiences and those relationships that they've built and the relationships leaders um, output. And I just have seen this pattern over and over. When you take somebody who hasn't worn all of those hats, you just don't have the context to be that force multiplier that you need at the top. So I think there's- Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes so much sense. So what skills have you, beyond this, what skills have you repurposed in across your career? So you started, um, uh, also, I kind of want to go back to that sliding door moment of not getting the bank job. I that really stuck in my head because I too had some jobs I was really excited about that didn't happen. And I think these these sliding door moments are so important for us to realize that maybe my plan A, when I was really disappointed I didn't get, was the best thing that ever happened to me. Have you had several sliding door moments? Well, I mean, that's the one I really remember because it changed my my future, right? I mean, you know. Uh, you know, it's great that you were at Amazon, but like the, the other alternatives were when you came to a certain school, whatever, you would go to banking, you'd go to consulting. So it's like, I did consulting. What else is there? Oh, banking. You know, there wasn't the Googles and Amazons of the world yet in our psyche. And so I was like, all right, I've done consulting. Let me go banking. And thank God. I mean, no offense to bankers. My husband's a banker. I really respect them, love working with them, but it's just not for me. And actually, I mean, I, I, it was research, so it wasn't hardcore M&A. Um, but you know, I think what's important, what you're saying, like what you think is important for you, um, and what you think is the path because you're influenced by external factors, by people around you, all your friends or bankers or consultants, you don't know. And then actually, you know, um, the world, whatever you want to call it kind of says, you know, that sorting hat, not really for you. Cause it's probably not going to like lean into it. Right. Embrace and be like, okay, let me, let me try something else. Let me look around. And I think we get so influenced by just the, you know, the little zone that we have around us, that micro world that you have. And it's so important to kind of look around um, and see what's out there. Um, and then just, you know, another example, I think we talked about it on, on Accelerate Her was, I was thinking about going to business school, this company that, um, this first startup that I was at, we were going to close it down after three or four years, the internet 1.0 was about to go bust. And I got a call from my ex-intern who was like, you know, I'm building these businesses in Malta, which I heard were malls. Um, and I was like, I can do malls in New Jersey. No problem. Excellent. I grew up there. And then he's like, no, it's in Malta. And I'm like, like I didn't even know where that was. Um, but it sounded cool and it was different. And I was like, wow, it's a real opportunity to do something that is very different that might even help me in my business school application later. So, um, and, and so that, you know, it's again, that moment where should I go to business school now? If I had I gone again, would have been in a very traditional path. Um, and I wouldn't have had that international experience, which now got to be, got me where I am now. I so relate to that. I share in the book, um, this, so I started in tech very unintentionally just as a result of the dot-com bust because there just no one, there were no jobs available, especially in Seattle, which is such a tech oh, yeah. economy. Um, and then I went back to plan A and thought, nope, okay, we'll go back. And I still want to be a professor. I want to be an academic. Again, very traditional path. I am so glad that the universe disrupted me multiple times. I'm so much happier in this, this crazy journey that I feel like was just chosen for me. Um, because then going into Google, I realized that that is where I really use these nuggets. But each of those moments in our, in our path, I, I still am pulling lessons, even from my PhD, even though I didn't finish and I wasn't there very long before Google recruited me. I learned some really important things in those moments that I, I'm drawing from now. And I think one of the most important things I learned during grad school was how to ask the right question. Mm. I realized that you didn't know, need to know the answer. What you can, sometimes the most valuable thing you can add to a conversation, and I found this to be especially true in business, is asking the right question to get the leaders or the decision makers to see it from a different perspective or, or maybe anticipate something coming around a blind corner. So um, important, not something you're taught, no. you know, 101, right? Like, know the answer. It's like, no, 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 ask the right question. And you mm -hmm. just said it, like, take people on the journey. You don't have to tell them it's not this. You just ask the right questions and they get there themselves, especially executives. Um, it's, it's, it's a powerful tool. You're absolutely right. 
And I really appreciate you bringing up the international experience being a, an important foundation for you. Not only did it qualify you to have the role that you have currently, but I think it really opened my mind. I lived in Sweden when I was in my early 20s. Now I'm based in Europe again, in Spain and all, working all across Europe. It really changes my approach to my work. Um, so what did you learn during that crazy time in Malta? And um, how did that change the way that you approached your work going forward? I mean, look, you know, I was born in Iran, but I grew up in New Jersey. So, you know, what, you can call me international, but not really. I mean, I was definitely the girl from New Jersey much more than, than anything else. And you just, look, I loved America. When I moved from um, Iran to America, no one said anything to me. Everyone embraced me. No one ever says you're not American. So that is the wonderful thing about America. Get chills even talking about it now versus other family that went to other countries where they were like, you're never going to be French. French, English, or whatever, you know, and they never really kind of accepted them. Um, so that was great. And I think um, you probably see it too, is there are different cultures. There isn't just one. And so, you know, we worked with a lot of German people and we, we did some launches in Germany and you realize your approach to someone in Germany has to be very different to your approach to someone in Spain, Malta, which is a Mediterranean country. And, you know, I think Americans kind of can go in there with everything is awesome approach and it's, and, you know, some people love it. Some people don't. And they don't take you seriously. And they're like, oh, you're going to say everything is awesome. So I can't, what can I? And you just, you have to pivot and you have to figure it out. And it, you know, it takes a second to be like, okay, who am I talking to culturally? Okay. And not everyone's the same. So again, I don't want to stereotype, but you have to be able to talk to people and relate to people in a different way. And I think that's what I've really learned. And embrace those differences. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but you can't go in with the same cell every single time. I really learned that early in the Google years. I remember when we were, um, Larry and Sergey had this seemingly insane idea, which became Street View, where they were gonna literally drive cars on every street on the planet and put that available. And we were, as Americans, like, this is amazing. You can like see the restaurant before you get there, scope out where to park, like you can orient yourself. Launched in Germany and they were furious. Their, their sense of um, privacy has a very different definition and we had not totally. And so to respect that for them, that was very invasive to have a photo of their home available on the internet for people to stalk was really uh, made, made them massively uncomfortable. And we had not anticipated that kind of reaction. And mm. about global launches, when you work at a company like Amazon's and Google's and you're your avatar user isn't just this theoretical person. It's literally every person on the planet. You have to be really forward thinking. And that's when we realized we needed country leads, country managers in every market that we were opening to reflect those values and sensitivities of each place and be respectful of those. That was very eye-opening because that was not a pleasant experience. They were rightfully quite upset. Yes. I mean, I, I can't even imagine it now that I know, right? Like, oh my God, getting them to tick like a marketing box, right? Is, I mean, you can't even do that. That Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So now you, you had that international experience. How did you end up, how did you go from that uh, role into now your role as CEO of Beauty Pie? How, were, how did that transition come about? Well, I was a Malta for a while and then I decided to come back home and I went to business school. And, and really this was a insecurity that I didn't know enough on the finance side. And if I was gonna progress in my career, rightly or wrongly, I should have that background and also just that stamp of approval. You know, that, yeah. that's kind of what I realized. Um, and uh, when I went to business school, I realized I probably knew most of the stuff already. Um, so, you know, but it was the networking that, that, that was great. And then I actually had this German boyfriend from before and, um, and we broke up and uh, I, right after business school and I was devastated. Um, and a ex-colleague of mine from my first internet 1.0 experience called me and they needed someone to look at some products of a company that he was working for in, in London. And he's like, Hey, I know you're, you know, you're almost married, but you know, could you come to London for a while? And I was like, oh, I'm not married. So, um, <laughs> in tears and I packed my bags literally the next day, flew to London, um, worked with him for a while. It was September, 2007. So financial crisis. Everything was, you know, there was a raid on, um, you know, on, on the banks. So we decided to close down that business, obviously. Um, it wasn't the right time. But actually our um, board, one of the investors was investing in a company called Wanga, which became, you know, one of the first fintechs in the UK. And I actually ended up joining them. So that was a kind of serendipity. Um, 
you know, I, I never used to like to talk about my personal life, right? Like, oh, a boyfriend, don't mention that when you think about your jobs. But like, that is the fact, right? That is life. Like, I was devastated. And thank God that call came um, because it wouldn't have happened that way. The personal side, we can't separate our work selves from what's going on in our personal life. Like my personal life being flipped completely upside down and I, me uprooting myself from Silicon Valley, then falling for our boy in small town Spain, created this whole crazy journey I'm on right now that I did not expect and never would probably have been brave enough to do otherwise. I, I think there's such a theme across both your career and mine where we've had these moments of massive disruption that ended up being such a gift. Like totally. financial crisis or it's a personal life crisis, how you come out the other side of that and be open to like, okay, I, I'm going to reinvent this. We're going to have a new thing. It's going to be better and just being willing to dive into that. So you now move into FinTech, which is, it, it is a nice resource of your skills and the things you probably reinforce through business school. What was that environment like, especially during that time of, of evolution of the internet? FinTech was very cutting edge when you were in it and just um, being invented. How did you approach that? Yeah, it, you know, it was great because it was a group of us that I'm sure you can relate from Amazon and, and Google early days, young people, the entrepreneur, um, Errol Damlin, one of the things that I always took with me was, there were some parts he was totally wrong on, but on this piece that he didn't want anyone from the industry. And the reason he said that is every time I go and talk to, they say it can't be done. And so I want people that have never really been in finance that have done lending because every time I speak to them, they're like, no way, this is impossible. You can never go against the banks. And so he hired a bunch of young people um, who, you know, the guy that was doing our like, Google AdWords, you know, was like a musician, but he was super <laughs> smart at math, right? And I'm sure you had so many of these people at Amazon and at Google. And that was a great thing that I learned um, from, you know, the entrepreneur was that he took risks on people. He saw something in them and he took risks on them and he put us all together. And I mean, what I remember was we had so much fun. We had so many hard problems that we had to solve from how do we do payments to how do we do lending? I mean, I remember once again, I did everything, right? I picked up the customer service phone. Someone needed help with something. We didn't have enough people. I would do it. Um, but interesting, I was, I was um, hired first to do business development because that's what you hire MBAs to do, right? And, um, and very quickly, I'm like, what? There's no one managing the product here. Maybe I should do that. And again, he's like, yeah, go ahead. And then from there, we realized we didn't have a CTO. He's like, but you're going to be CTO now for the next year. And I was like, okay. Um, but the constant taking bets on people, giving them opportunities, giving them guardrails to help them because you can't throw them if they can't um, help you. And then, you know, seeing how they, how they work. And generally, when you hire the right people with the right mindset, with the right growth mindset, you make some great things happen. There were some areas we probably needed some people in the business, like compliance. Um, that's probably not something you want to create from scratch lessons learned. Um, but generally, it really was throwing in a bunch of really smart people who care deeply, um, giving them opportunities, being very agile, um, giving them a lot of empowerment and challenge. And I think that's, that's the second piece, which was we were taught very quickly, like, I'll empower you, but you need to be able to back yourself. And that very quick challenge, and again, I'm sure you've lived it too, if you want to tell me an idea, you better be able to know your numbers. You better need to be able to talk very quickly and answer very quickly. Otherwise, I don't have confidence in what you say. And so we were really trained. Boom, boom, boom. What is this? What is that? Why is that? Why is that not? Okay, I, I hear you. I'm shaking my head like a bobblehead because there's so much wisdom to unpack in what you just said. And it's if the faster... Uh, someone at the beginning of their career or someone looking to reinvent themselves can adopt those best practices, it's an accelerant. Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet On Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet On Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, 
but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. A um, couple things I want to highlight that you said is one, working for a leader who hires really, really well, very smart, ambitious people. Because I think the biggest indicator of long-term success is just the quality of people on your team. Absolutely, 100%. Work for a leader that you not only like, but want to become like, I think is so important. Uh, I agree with the hiring philosophy of hire smart people because you can teach them to do anything. I love that you had this brilliant uh, talented musician slash mathematician doing your Google ads, like that combination of talent is so crazy. And I also like the sound of having, um, it sounds like in that environment, it was really celebrated the value of being a novice, the value brought when people are doing things, they don't know how they're supposed to be done, quote unquote. And so you have these wild approaches just because you don't know, you don't know any better. Exactly at it in really creative ways. And that's how you create a culture of innovation. And that's probably why you describe it as so much fun, mm-hmm. even though I'm sure you're working insane hours, right? <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I don't know. And, th- and that's it, right? Because you're constantly learning, you're constantly, you're on edge, but the good edge. And there's some days where you're like, head in hand, but you're always growing. And then you look back and you're like, wow, I did that. And we did that. And then the team really comes together because you're all novices generally. And then there's a couple of grownups we'd call uncle or aunt, you know, at the time, because they knew they had to know some, some things, but it was really fun. And what, it, what happens, I mean, I've hired a bunch of those same people into beauty pie, just because, you know, you grow up with them, you, you, you know, you know them, you've gone through battle with them. And also, you know, they, ha- they share that growth mindset. Exactly. Oh my gosh. The people from early years of both of those. Mm. Those are my foxhole friends for life. Absolutely. Know what they're like at like three in the morning in a war room. Like you bond a forever friendship when you've gone through that together. And, and whether it's successful or not, I mean, I'm including the projects that were like complete disasters. You learn so much in that process that that becomes your favorite war stories sometimes. Absolutely. Those failures. I yeah. mean, they, they, they get you through everything. They do. So how did you then go from fintech to beauty pie. Yeah, I mean, I am um, the recruiter that was that called me. She was the recruiter at Wonga. She was the recruiter at Funding Circle. Um, so she called me and she's like, there's this company called Beauty Pie. And I'm like, it's called beauty. I'm like, no, thank you. I mean, I, it's fun for me. But you know, that that sounds old, antiquated. You know, I like other things. So she's like, no, you know, you should really get to know um, Marcia Kilgore. And then I remembered Marcia's name because back in you know, Internet 1.0, um, and the glory years of, of, of New York around that time, she started uh, her, first, um, her first spa, which was called Bliss Spa. And I remember waiting a year um, to get an appointment and then finally got one kind of halfway through and had the most amazing facial and other things there. And then when I came to London, I moved. It was probably the first place I went to. And I was like, oh, I feel like I'm in New York again. Oh, this is so great. And I asked the technician, I can't believe how consistent the service is. And she's like, oh, Marcia trained us. And I'm like, Marcia, and I knew that she'd sold the business. And I'm like, she's still training the technicians. That's amazing. So I was like, all right, you know, let me, let me meet her. And then I checked out what they were doing and what we were doing now. And, you know, I realized how disruptive it is. The whole idea of, you know, the current beauty industry charges way too much. We have been, you know, forced to think that luxury equals expensive. And actually the La Mer that costs 200 pounds is made in the same way. And they're all cost around 10 to 12 pounds to make. And how could we bring that to other people? So for those who aren't familiar with Beauty Pie's very disruptive business model, can you explain how it works? Because I, yes. I the most exciting things I've heard in a long time. I'm, it's one of those ideas when you hear it, you're like, oh my gosh, why, is it, why aren't more people doing this? It feels so, that's a genius idea when you hear something like that. So Yeah, it wasn't mine, so I can say it's definitely genius. <laughs> so we're building the world's first luxury beauty buyers club. So what that means is um, people join us um, via membership model and they get access to amazing luxury beauty products um, around warehouse prices. So for example, you know, you're talking about a 200 pound or 100 pound um, moisturizer, uh, under eye serum, whatever that you're paying right now, and you get it for around 12 to 13 pounds. 
amazing makeup lipsticks for around six pounds. And the way we do it is Marcia, who is our founder, she's been in the business for 30 years and she sold products for 100, 200 pounds, which I have bought, um, which have been amazing. She goes and she formulates products based on some of the best ingredients that are out there. And what's interesting, and, and, and she talks about this, is that you know, given the retailers' cuts and margins that, the, that these companies have, you know, they're forced to squeeze on the ingredients. So they'll take the best ingredients, but a little bit. We don't have the retailers' cuts. We've cut out all the middlemen. So we can deliver those savings direct to our customers. So you can get amazing products that she has pretty much formulated. Um, and, you know, what I always, you know, understood was it was disruptive. It democratizes access to these products. But what I never anticipated was the emotional response people would have. You know, especially during COVID times, the NHS nurse, um, the, you know, the mom who gets a box and the pink box, the unboxing experience is very cute. Hopefully you'll see, get yours soon. You open it up. And that's when people have the unlock when they realize, oh, this isn't what I could get at Walgreens or Boots. This is actually something that is luxurious. Um, and so, and they realize, wow, and then they feel good and they feel like a princess or someone that's important. And then they do their routine, something they never thought they could do because they could never afford those products. And suddenly they can put a serum on and a moisturizer and a primer and some amazing lipstick that feels very different to what they're used to. I love that you're opening up this to people who otherwise would be excluded from this industry, these, this quality of product and making it accessible to everyone. I think the business model is so interesting. Like, I just don't know how anyone is doing anything else. <laughs> I, I, it's such a revolutionary idea and I cannot wait uh, to experience it myself. It's really incredible. I wonder, can you tell me though, so for the first time when you come to Beauty Pie, instead of launching a digital product, you're now launching physical products that have Yikes. structured and packaged and shipped. It's a physical thing that takes a pipeline. Can you um, walk me through what are the parts of those launch cycles that are similar that you know your experience in fintech and launching virtually helped you in that process? And then maybe some of the lessons you've learned. And I imagine there's been some disruption because of COVID shut down some of those pipelines and things that you've learned. In Suez Canal, who, who would have thought? Um, yeah, I guess day one lesson, I go in, I'm talking about product in my mind, product is technical product. And then I realize in the same meeting, they're talking about the wet product. So it's like, okay, so, all right, let, let, let me re reframe. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, going from digital to a six month lead time, Wow. right? And it's like, what? And I mean, it took me a while to get my head around it. Um, and that was the area, luckily, we have a great head of ops that I really didn't even touch. And, you know, Marcia, rightly so, kind of kept looking at that area before I really got my hand into the detail. Um, so, you know, that is a challenge. You know, when COVID happened, we had tailwinds, which was more people were going online and they were happy to try moisturizers online. So that was great. But the headwinds were, you know, trying to get priority to get a container out of Asia. I mean, you know, when you're a small company, um, people in the warehouse getting sick, trying to see will people go into the warehouse? Are they safe? That was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those factors that you never even think about um, came to life. And, you know, really it comes down to at the end of the day though, like everything in life, one, there's a data element. So you start kind of forecasting and understanding the, the times and how much we're paying and how, what the lead times are. And then you start picking it apart, right? Like what can we do here? And actually what you realize is there's a lot you can do around packaging to have the packaging in place so then you can just fill because that's what takes a long time i mean did you know that pumps you can't find pumps right because there's a whole shortage because of antibacterial oh, so God. pumps are like a worldwide shortage you won't have them for another year um so how do you deal with that and how do you adjust but really and then the other piece understanding the data and looking at the holes is the relationships you have mm. so the relationships with the suppliers especially with the labs and marcia has really really the top relationships she's known them for a long time you know we've gotten so big especially in terms of the products that we have um that you know we are you know number two one number two customers so they can prioritize us um and then it's really being able to say hey to the suppliers you know we can start selling some of your best products your r d so let us know and that's actually we don't have to keep them in our warehouse but we sell them direct again literally no middleman and that's kind of the, the way we want to go eventually but it is you know it's it is really different but you just kind of have to get your head around it but the analytics really help because then you kind of see okay this is how long it takes this is what we could do this is the benefit if we cut it by this much and then start asking the right questions 
I love the pivots and the silver linings you found. And I also love how you're using these tried and true tech company uh, methods of, of dealing with crises where you just go back to the data. What are we seeing? What are the patterns? What is within our control? What isn't? How can we gain more control over a, a now disrupted pipeline? And um, you've come out the other side with some very creative solutions that are now new operational go-to standards really for you. I think it's incredible. It's amazing what a gift it can be when you have a really proactive approach to a crisis or to a pivot moment because it forces you, instead of being complacent with, well, this is just how the pipeline's usually done, you're forced to ask like, what is an alternative way that actually in the end now has been better for you? I imagine in these times, I definitely have experienced this, that the quality of people I have around me in these moments is again, one of the most important elements of success. You obviously have been somebody who's sought out working with leaders that you really respect and admire and who bring out the best in you. Can you talk to me a little bit about the team you've assembled around you who are reporting to you and how, how you identify talent, maybe especially in an early entry level employee, someone new to your team? Yeah, so um, when I first came, like you said, number one priority, hire, hire, hire. And I, I learned that lesson a couple of times where I'm like, no, no, I don't need to hire. I'll still do it for, for now. I need to understand. No, no, this time it was like, no, no, no. The only way to scale and to move quickly and to create that headspace for you to deal with the bigger problems like we were just talking about was to hire the right people. Um, and, you know, the first thing as, you know, at this time when I've worked enough, I went out to network, right? I went out to talk to people that I'd work with. Um, and lucky enough, you know, I know them, they know me, the opportunity sounded really exciting. There's not many companies like BDPi out there, um, certainly not in Europe, um, where people were very excited. And what was really cool was, you know, just like some people took a chance on me, um, you know, there were some people who probably weren't at that senior level or people wouldn't have considered them at that senior level, but I put them in that position because I knew what they could do and what they're capable of. And maybe other people haven't seen it or they wouldn't see it necessarily in a resume. And that's been invaluable. And, you know, bringing in people that you've worked with before, you just have that trust that so they can just run. They don't need to try to explain everything to you, why they're doing it, because you know how they think. And that's, you know, the most important thing is, look, we're never going to make the same decision all the time. Yeah. But if I know how you think and how you consider things and what things you take into account, then most likely we're going to agree 90% of the time. And that 10% that's okay. Um, and that's been super valuable. In terms of entry level, absolutely right. What I've also learned is, you know, what you need is that kind of chief of staff person, um, strategic analyst, whatever you want to call it. And that is, you know, that was like the second hire. And I was really lucky that um, Index kind of came forward. And one of the, the, the people that worked at Index, she was looking for something else. And she'd actually worked at Lending Club before. So she was in FinTech. So we kind of were like, how do we do this together? But, you know, she really is my number two in doing everything, looking at everything. And what's great about young people, um, you know, in their early journey of their career is that, you know, they question everything. They're so smart. They're, you know, their brain works much faster than it's certainly mine. Um, and, you know, you kind of throw something at them and they'll come up with you five questions. They'll ask you those five and you're like, oh, I never thought about that. And that's so helpful. So, and also you just see them progress and that's what's the great thing. You know, you just see them move through the organization. You're like, oh, I remember. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You get, you get both. Yeah. Uh, I, it reminds me a lot of the teams that I've worked with across my career. And I honestly think they were my favorite part of my work. People ask me, um, you know, do I miss Google? And they assume I'm going to say, like, I miss the free food. I miss, you know, the campus or all these things that I don't, they must have massively pivoted all of those benefits. <laughs> in this crisis but what i miss the most is definitely my team they were the people who even right now if i had an emergency they'd be my first because you like you said they have the right instincts they write they know you you just you've got that psychological safety in this history together i think that's one of the most beautiful things in my career i've been so lucky to work with spectacular people and now in my own company that's priority number one i i flew solo for a long time because I had in mind this avatar person who needed to be my number two. I feel like I conjured her up out of the air and she appeared here and has changed everything. Like literally nothing I'm doing right now would be possible without her. Amazing. Yeah. It's so lonely doing it by yourself. Right. I mean, yes. you need to share you, right. Cause it's like, Oh my God, I've had a horrible day. What about this? And yeah. you know, you just need that person to be able to talk to. You do. And especially now when we're all having, so much disruption on the home front and the climate, political climate and in our work. Um, it, it's really important to have those, those foxhole friends around you for sure. 
I'm curious now, so you've done a lot of pivoting and these pipelines. I'm curious about scaling and growth because doing that in tech, I've only done that on these virtual launch side. How do you prepare to scale when it is a physical product? And maybe there are ways that you have to do it differently now because of these pipeline issues. But how do we even plan and anticipate when it's a physical thing? Because I've, I've never experienced that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there isn't uh, like everything, unfortunately, there's no magic. But, you know, we talk about um, a big OKR that we have, which is scalable platform. Um, and, you know, that is in every area. And it really is a combination of having the analytics around it and the forecasting and the data science around it and building those models and trying to anticipate everything besides a global pandemic that will happen and how that impacts your demand. Um, airing on one side or the other. So I think um, what I've also learned is there's different phases in the business. So on certain phases, you want to have extra inventory, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen and you're in growth mode and the brand impact of not having it. And we went through it in the beginning of, of lockdown where you just didn't have enough inventory really hurts. When you're a growing business, that is much worse than having some extra inventory that you may have to get rid of. And it's just you know, my investors don't want to hear that, but it's just cost, right? It's just money um, versus, you know, people and their reactions and feeling that they've been let down. And in a membership model, that's quite significant, right? Um, what are they going to buy for their membership? So, you know, I think that that is one thing to be really, really, really aware of, you know, when, when you're looking at it. Um, the other piece, and then there might be in a year's time or two years time where we're a lot more cost conscious mm -hmm. and we can take a little bit because we have so many products out there and so many backups, right? So one of the things that happened to us was we only had, we called it um, cleanser gate. Um, so we only had like one cleanser and our best cleanser wasn't there. But you know, in a year's time, two years time, we'll have a few cleansers out there. And if the first one isn't around, we have better mechanisms where we can alert people, the timing will be shortened so they don't have to wait six months, so they don't have to leave. And we might be more cost conscious, in which case we'll be more careful. The data will be more robust so we can be, you know, it, it'll be easier. So I think we'll have to pivot accordingly. Um, the other piece is really having the right people in place who actually, you know, either have done it or can think really on their feet and to see when you have a Suez Canal issue, who do you call in your network to get what you need to get the container that has a little bit of free space that you can put because yours doesn't take a whole container, but that one has just got the right amount of space and you push it on that one, right? And that's the hustle, right? So you need some hustlers always on board to be doing that kind of stuff. So it's really a combination of, you know, what stage you are, what you want to optimize for, and then, you know, getting those people on board who will, then be like quick thinkers and 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 we'll get that area or do something else completely wow it's such a it's fascinating for me to see because i was exposed to that just minimally at amazon because we did move physical things but it was so it was still so different it was so early days that watching jeff wilkie really create those <laughs> those methods was just mind-blowing to me like you said the hustlers the people who use their relationships their network their creative thinking and just find that tiny space on a tiny <laughs> on a ship that, that can get it to you. It's amazing. So right now, Beauty Pie is available in the US and in the UK is yes. growth plans, more focusing on saturating those markets and getting more of those customers. Or are you planning to expand into any new countries anytime soon? Yes, all, all of the above. Um, we are in the UK and the US is smaller for us. So we haven't really done a big push and we are going to do that um, in the next months, probably the next six months. And definitely we are eyeing Europe um, in terms of what are the best markets, Spain definitely on the list. So I will <laughs> let you know. Um, you know, there, there is an option where we can ship to all these European networks through our European warehouse, which is in the UK. Um, also our labs are in Europe. So you could theoretically but as we know, there's no small projects in the world. And so we are very focused on, you know, starting the scale up mode, making sure our platforms are all working and then it'll just be easy to add a country. Um, you know, there's some packaging that we have to do, but besides that, you know, our networks should be able to handle it. So um, it really is just a matter of time. I'd say, in the, you know, in the next 12, 18 months, um, we'll, we'll be looking at other countries in Europe. Selfishly, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get you back to London for um, in the next, 
Uh, definitely. That makes it even easier. I'll bring an empty suitcase. <laughs> That's what Marcia does. She comes back, gets everything, and then goes back because she lives in Switzerland. Excellent. There's precedent for this kind of behavior. That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. This is incredible. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but as we wrap up our conversation, I wonder if I can ask you about some of your biggest lessons, if we can be reflective. And I think it's weird. I've been talking about legacy a lot recently, maybe because mortality has become more real for all of us recently. Yeah. I don't know, but I think of legacy not as something that just happens when you die, but literally the decisions you're making every single day. If I can apply legacy without implying that you're old or at the end of your career, as you look back, what are some of the biggest takeaways or things that you're just, um, maybe some summary lessons that you've learned that you maybe didn't anticipate? Yeah, the first one, I was in this um, startup 1.0, and you know, like I said, I was doing everything. Um, and that kind of kept in my head for a while. Meanwhile, we were starting to scale and we'd hired people in different areas. And I was still doing everything. And we had a woman who was sharing office with us and she was quite a tough New Yorker. Um, and she was a Goldman Sachs banker and then was you know, doing some investments and everything. And it was late one night and she, you know, we were talking. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm helping so-and-so with the model. And she stood up and she was literally even shorter than I am and I'm like literally five foot. I mean, she put her hand on her, uh, on her hips and she's like, stop being the mommy of the office. <laughs> and she's like, you're helping everyone, but what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, oh. And it's funny because I'd had a review who had said, you know, I know you do so much, but I don't know what you're doing. Like so-and-so I can point, he's improved this by this much. So-and-so has improved this by, and you're kind of all around and I know you're helping, but I don't know what you're doing. And, I, and that was, that stayed with me for life. Um, that kind of helping everyone um, and not, not having a clear goal, okay, are things that you're focused on um, and measuring against that so that you can show people because not everyone is going to be around, oh, I know what you're doing, right? And as you scale. And that's really helped me in life in terms of, um, uh, uh, of what you do. The other piece that I think it started at Wanga just because, like I said, we had this kind of challenge culture where you had to be really fast, really quick thinking, was being direct with people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's helped me a lot. It is not easy for people. Um, you know, sometimes I've been called aggressive. I actually just mean to be direct. But there are a lot of people who operate in a much more passive don't say what they feel. And you know, you just lose so much time. And then like six months later, they'll be like, when you did this? And you're like, the world's moved on. I mean, if you just told me this six months ago, you wouldn't have had this pain. Or most importantly, feedback to your team, to your peers. The minute like, you know, the radical feedback, very much believe in it. So those are the two things I carry with me. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're, uh, both of those, I think, when I look back, have been at the core of any moment of success or actual impact I had, getting the balance of those things right. It's a mistake I made early in my career as well, exact same. I was trying to be helpful to everyone, so I diluted my impact because it was just, I was little exactly. here, 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 sprinkling, and I didn't have one summary thing of like, and that I got a similar review from my first manager, Marissa Meyer. She's an incredible people motivator, really good at hiring. And my first review with her, I was very proud. I thought I had done a lot. I came in not knowing a soul. And especially at that time in Google's history, how you got things done was just through relationships, through people. Yeah. I had been diluting my impact by trying to help all of our teams. We were doing launch events like every 40 days. It was just like constant. And I, same, like I got the feedback of like, I don't know how to measure that. Um, and in an environment where everything has to be measurable, measured, yeah, it was, it was non-impactful. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's such wisdom. And then I think, um, taking those lessons and really knowing how to have those conversations when you're early in your career, how do you seek out that kind of critical feedback of when yeah. someone's good job actually leaning into and be and being like, what exactly about that should I be replicating going forward, getting into the details of it, or doing a postmortem of being proactively being like, hey, I'm not proud of how that went. I really want to learn the core issues. Here's how I think we should go forward and, and having those, inviting those challenging conversations. And then as the manager, being very proactive, I couldn't agree more that like giving it in the moment is so much more effective than in the moment performance evaluation when they've forgotten the circumstances. Um, so I think those two things alone, I mean, it's a mic drop, like those can change careers completely just with those two. Lessons. Absolutely. Wow. I agree. But so hard, but so hard. So hard. <laughs> All of that the hard way. <laughs>
Um, so I'd love to end on a very positive note, and I'm curious, what gives you hope or a joyful feeling about the future? What are you excited about that's coming next? Well, I think, um, you know, generally just seeing mankind with the vaccines that we've seen, you know, you realize you have faith in mankind, science, um, you know, man's ability, woman's ability, uh, certainly in the UK driven by a woman, which is great um, to, to really think and to make a difference and control, you know, the world. And so it gives me hope in terms of climate change. It gives me hope in terms of, you know, what, what we can achieve. Um, you know, for Beauty Pie, certainly, you know, everything is ahead of us. Um, we have a couple of changes and exciting, you know, on our website, which, you know, let me say is not the greatest yet, but it will be um, coming up. And, you know, what we're really excited to do, like I said, was get more people a piece of the pie and to get them access to these amazing products that, you know, they don't know about and they don't know that they can access. Um, and, you know, that it just gives us a lot of hope that, you know, we're going to making, you know, making people happy. And in this world, you kind of need to do that. I love centering that around joy, imagining the moment when the woman receives something that makes her feel good and valuable and like she's investing in herself. Absolutely. Beautiful, like mission to have. And I think the website is really nice. So I cannot wait to see your upgrades because it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're very excited. Yeah. So what is the best way for people to connect with you and Beauty Pie? How can we stay tuned with all these? I mean, LinkedIn, um, we will be posting our, um, you know, Beauty Pie on Instagram, um, you know, Marcia posts. Uh, we have, all, I think we do two posts a week, um, if not more. So all the products are on there. Um, so definitely take a look. Feel free to message me, um, pawnee.morchetti at beautypie.com. I read everything. I'm on Slack. You guys can access it, but uh but yeah, any messages, please. And I'm always looking for feedback about our customers, you know, how we're doing, what we're doing, um, any ideas for products. We get a lot from our members. We do lots of polls with our members. So please join the club. It's really exciting. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing the wisdom and the lessons learned across your journey. And I will definitely be closely tuned to all of these exciting Thank things. you so much for your time and for sharing your experience. It sounds like we, we were like living parallel lives. Were we were at crazy times of the internet, like these irreplicable moments of time. You and I were both trying to figure it out at the same time. Totally, totally. Glad that our paths have overlapped here, and uh, I and my empty suitcase will hopefully make it to London sometime soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's stay in touch, and I can't wait to host you here. That's great. And you, me, in Spain. I'm yeah, coming. Please. <laughs> Thank you, Penny. This is okay. Take care. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.